Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the UCL Careers podcast. My name's Joe Budd, and I'm a careers consultant here at UCL Careers. In this episode, our guest panelists share their perspectives on jobs and recruitment within the museums, arts and cultural heritage sector, recorded as part of the UCL Careers Museum, Arts and Cultural Heritage themed week. We hear from five excellent speakers from a range of roles who share their thoughts on various types of work opportunities available to students during the current climate, how the pandemic has affected the career paths available, as well as some suggestions on what students can do to boost their career prospects while at university. So let's get into it. I'm joined by Gina uh, Perrin-Cobbing, who's Head of Engagement and Skills at Somerset House. I'm joined by Tamsin Russell, who's the Workforce Development Officer from the Museums Association. I'm also joined by Kate Danielson, who is the Director of uh, Westwood, Western Jerwood Creative Bursaries. I'm joined by Susan Bradshaw, who's the Head of Professional Development at the Institute of Conservation. And finally, I'm joined by Lucy Moore, who is a Projects Curator at Leeds City Council, and she's also a member of the organisation Fair Museum Jobs. So thank you very much all for joining us uh, this evening. I guess we should begin with a bit of an introduction in terms of you, your background, um, and kind of a bit about your career history and your current role. So I guess if we begin with you, Dictionary, if you want to introduce yourself and share a bit about your career history and, and your current role. Yeah, happy to. Sorry, I was about to cough, so I just had to meet myself. Apologies. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for having me. And also, uh, thank you for joining me in my living room, the weird world that we, we live in. Um, so I thought I'd just go through my career history and a little bit about me personally as well. So my career in the cultural sector started in 2006 during my art history and history degree at the University of Aberdeen. Um, volunteering and interning at the Wallace Collection, British Museum, Naval Historical Centre in Washington, D.C. I then completed a museum, um, a master's in museum and gallery education at the UCL Institute of Education. And in April 2016, I became an elected trustee for the Museums Association. Hello, Tamsin. Um, working actively on a workforce development, supporting the development of conferences and currently um, leading the Future of Learning and Engagement Manifesto, which we just launched two weeks ago. And I will share a link to it a bit later on as well, because um, it's a really brilliant piece of work, even if I'm biased in saying that. But I also think it's important that anyone that wants to work with the museums and galleries should be looking at as a guide. I have lectured and given talks um, on master's courses and at national and international conferences, looking to share and learn from best practices and actively be part of the change I desire to see in the sector. The key to all of this is that I had the opportunity to deliver, learn, and while building on the theory that I studied while I was at university and doing my master's. Science Museum, I had a number of roles, explainer, which involved blowing up things and making bubbles and traveling the world and getting to deliver live science shows. It's also where I met my husband. The table names at our wedding were galleries of the Science Museum. Yes, we're losers, I realize. Um, and then I moved on to schools and community outreach officer, moving on to managerial roles, overseeing the explainer team and national and international outreach team. Then moved on to lead the Arts Council England Young People Skills Programme, um, which is aimed at 18 to 25 year olds. This is where my love of workforce and the need to diversify our workforce really came into play. I worked with wider sector bodies such as creative and cultural skills to explore the many ways that um, young people um, and our workforce can have an impact on the, the work that we do. 
Um, after this, I went on to work for Brent Council, which and um, Brent 2020, which is currently the Borough of Culture. Not, not the year you'd want to be Borough of Culture, if I'm honest, but hey, they're working through it. I was able to scratch, um, scratch um, from scratch build a youth collective called the Brent Blueprint Collective, a borough-wide education programme linked to the cultural programme, led a call of action about urban development with young people called Seen and Heard, and also led on a series of podcasts with Vice called Vent. Um, and then in January 2020, as a, as a pandemic engulfed the world, I became head of engagement and skills at Somerset House. Not how I imagined starting my first job in a senior management. And I won't lie, it's been a baptism of fire. But hey, if I can get through this year, then I think I can get through anything um, in leading a team. Um, in my initial months, I worked on a new strategy for the team, which focused on stronger connections to young people in our cultural program and diversifying our audiences. We changed our name from a learning and skills team to an engagement and skills team. Um, and thinking about how we can support our creative community and young people in the years ahead. Um, I know that I've been really lucky to work in the sector building skills such as delivering, developing, managing and leading learning and engagement teams to success. I'm focused still on diversifying our sector going beyond making collections or content, content accessible, but making this sector for and by everyone. I fell into this uh, um, into the world of arts and culture. My trip to Aberdeen for university was because I did my A-levels didn't go to plan, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me but we can't rely on people falling into the world of arts and culture for diversity to happen and for our programming and audiences and collections to change. I also have a brilliant and challenging and chatty two-year-old son called Seth. I long to have a lion. I, watch, I want to watch terrible rom-coms, especially Christmas ones. I love a monogram. I could eat spaghetti every day. Um, I'm also dyslexic, so if I have any typos in the chat, I apologise ahead. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great, so thank you so much for that. So lots to pick up on as we go through the discussion. Um, if I turn now maybe to Susan, would you like to give a brief introduction to yourself and your career history and your current role? Okay, thanks, Nicole. Um, hello, everybody. Um, well, I started off, um, I graduated in 1981, so quite a while ago now. <laughs> it seems like the whole world has flashed by me. Um, but um, I actually graduated with a degree in three-dimensional design um, and worked in the creative industry for three years. Um, it was a difficult time then too in the 1980s for getting work uh, and um, I was secured a, a post from my degree into that creative industry so I was chuffed to bits um, and Unfortunately, they hit rough times too. And so I was uh, made redundant and made to look for, or I was looking for other work as well. And hit across um, a, a job that was advertised locally for a trainee archive conservator. And that was how I entered the uh, profession, uh, working for Devon County Council for 13 years, growing within the, the job, uh, learning in the workplace, building on the skills I had from the, um, my degree and uh, learning about the knowledge uh, around conservation too. Uh, in that time while I was there uh, and through promotion, I um, developed my management skills and gained management qualification uh, and looked around to see how I could use that and build my position as a conservator. Uh, looking at volunteering for the professional body of the time, which was the Society of Archivists, which is now the Archives and Records Association. Uh, I uh, sort of volunteered for the, um, the training role within uh, the conservation uh, specialist group. And uh, that actually 
engaged me further, gave me a lot more interest in how to sort of communicate, how to um, advocate the, the profession, how to uh, support those people who are learning and also addressing my learning skills at the time, at the time, learning needs at the same time. And that actually was the key that made me sort of think, I really, really am enjoying this. Um, and therefore, uh, when the job of training officer came up for the archives um, professional body, I was appointed and uh, sort of left the conservation profession behind for a bit, uh, looking at how to develop uh, archive archivists, records managers and conservators within the profession. So really spreading the sort of the, the remit there uh, until ICON came along, the Institute of Conservation. Uh, I became very much involved with the professional accreditation of conservators uh, and initially was appointed as accreditation manager to look at um, how that was being developed. And we're actually hitting the 20th anniversary year this year for um, accreditation in conservation. So um, that's sort of really uh, sort of the basis of, of where I am now. Uh, I work for ICON and I've been in my current role for nine years as head of professional development. Uh, and that entails sort of obviously accreditation, but the overview of that, I'll have a small team that work at ICON with me to um, promote and to manage and oversee that. Uh, internships, professional um, development opportunities, uh, CPD very much so, how to support members, how to um, provide the, the right training events for them, uh, and uh, sort of the strategic issues around professional development as a whole. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Susan. I'm going to continue going clockwise. So, Lucy, on to you, and if you want to give us a brief introduction. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks very much for having us. Um, so, I work for Leeds Museums and Galleries, um, and I'm our projects curator. Um, well, one of them, there's two actually. Um, and uh, what we do is look after long term, large scale, uh, city wide projects. Um, and up till last year, that was the centenary of the First World War. It was a biggie um, and we probably about 75% of what we did was produced with communities or artists or people from all around the city um, so it was really nice and uh, there are about your stats are there's about 2.9 million people involved so we got like loads of visitors it was amazing um, but uh, I'm also involved with fair museum jobs. Uh, and what we do is advocate for better working practices in the sector. Um, museums are unfair. Um, I'll just say it now. The recruitment is unfair and it has historically been unfair. And we want to see that change. Um, and I, I real feel really passionate about it um, because my first job was in a chip shop, I, you know, I didn't really know what museums or heritage kind of were from where I grew up. Um, and I just think, you know, the more people there are, the merrier. Um, and I always like to drop in that I worked in a chip shop for a while because um, it's where I got all my customer service skills. Like I can talk to anyone for as long as they'll have me. Um, because when someone's uh, waiting for some fried fish and it's, it's not cooking, You've got to like, you know, do the time of day. Um, so 
I really believe in transferable skills as well. So um, please, you know, as we're chatting, think about, oh, well, I can't do that, but I can organise this. Um, and yeah, looking forward to your questions later. Great, thank you so much. Really varied backgrounds we're hearing here, so it's good to hear. Um, Tamsin, on to you for a brief introduction. Thank you very much, Nicole. I was going to echo that. What I love is always hearing these stories because it demonstrates to me that there's no one path. And I think that's really important. Whilst that might be frustrating, because unlike other professions where there's a very clear linear progression and vertical progression, our sector doesn't have that. Uh, and for me, that's a strength because that does mean that it is more open and there are opportunities to be a lateral. So I'd be classed as a lateral. So I worked not in the museum sector, but in the retail sector for about, oh gosh, well, long time, for about 15 years before making the move here. So uh, I am an ex-UCLer. So I did zoology as my first degree at UCL. So I love the Grant Museum. And uh, I needed to pay off some debt. So I uh, went and got a job and then decided I was going to apply for a PhD. Didn't get it. Felt absolutely devastated. Couldn't go into London Zoo for many years because it was so hard. Uh, so decided to go traveling again. Uh, I went traveling, came back, still had loads of debt, decided how am I going to pay this debt off and then go and live life more excitedly. So I got a job as a receptionist at Selfridges. And very quickly, I worked my way up. So six promotions later, and I ended up being their head of uh, training and development for, for managers and leaders, And but knew there was something missing. So I've always loved museums and a job came up at the Science Museum Group. So I applied to be their head of department for training and development. And that was fantastic. And I enabled me to think more broadly about how to affect change and how to support individuals. And I sort of go from looking at individual level support to organizational level support. So when I'm working with individuals, I get so frustrated about the, uh, the lack of transparency, the lack of generosity and the institutional compromise that individuals have to experience that I then want to change the organization. So I then switch to organizational development. And then I get realized that actually how you affect changes through individuals and then I switch back. So I'm currently actually in the best position that I do lots of my work at an individual level, but also I'm available to affect sector change. And that's more important than organizational change because organizational change often is at the whim of whoever the CEO is in power at that particular point. So for me, being able to affect sectoral change is far more exciting. Just two more things, just really just to highlight. Um, uh, first of all, I'm very values led. So generosity is important to me. Inclusion is important to me. Honesty is important to me. And I don't think this sector is always honest with itself or with others. And evidence based practice is really important to me. So we talk often and hear often about anecdotes. And I'm always the person that says, well, what does the research say? That's great. But what does the research say? Final thing for me as a lateral in is I've been described as not a museum professional, that I'm just an administrator. And that's really interesting to me because there are so many other roles that exist within the sector. Not all of us are curators. We can make a huge impact and difference to what's going on without having that manta of, of a curator. So if you, you've not already done some, some cultural stuff, if you're an undergraduate in any other area, I'm the zoologist here in the room, you can still find a pathway in, in the sector in the broadest terms. 
And then a final thing really just to echo is that I still volunteer. So often people think about volunteering as being a way in which you, you gain access to the sector. I sit on the UK-wide accreditation committee. I sit on the Scotland Recognition Committee for designated and recognised collections. I'm a museum mentor as well as doing freelance pro bono work. So um, it's just about thinking around your career holistically. And that's, I suppose, a message I would get across is that there are many permutations. That's me. Great. Thank you so much, Tamsin. We're going to touch on volunteering and hopefully this whole purpose of this, this event is giving people an honest picture of what, actually what's going on at the moment. So hopefully we'll cover that off as well. Um, lastly, we're going to move on to Kate uh, just to share her background. Thank you, Nicole. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I was going to say lovely to see you all, but of course we can't see you yet. But anyway, I've really enjoyed um, hearing the stories of my fellow panelists. And uh, there's a lot here that relates to um, the, what I want to talk about, which is the Western Gerald Creative Bursaries, um, a programme that I've run for the last 10 years on behalf of the Gerald um, Gerwood Arts, who are a funder um, in the arts sector. And uh, um, we um, were given the money initially to set up the programme 10 years ago by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport that was looking for um, some research about why um, the arts profession is so um, white middle class and why it's so hard for people from a wider range of backgrounds to get in. The issue of unpaid internships has always been a real issue, was particularly back then in 2010. And uh, so we have changed the program and adapted it over the years in order to provide fellowships for those from underrepresented backgrounds to get into fantastic jobs in the arts. And, um, we are just into our fourth edition and I put a link into the chat um, for all the fellowships which are currently on offer all over the country. They're in museums and galleries and theatres and um, music venues and theatre, so huge places like the RSC and Liverpool Philharmonic and the British Library and they're all creative roles for people at the start of their careers. And all of the recruitment is done by the host organizations themselves. There are 50 of them up there. And um, it was interesting, Tamsin, what you were saying about, it is this mix, if you're going to create a change in our sector, it's this mix of individuals, um, organizational change and sector change, because we spent the first probably six, seven years of this program focusing on the individuals that were starting their fellowships. You know, it was all about them. We would create these amazing pathways for them and hey presto, the sector would change. But of course, what we were doing was putting too much pressure on those people to make the change, you know, start in these organizations that perhaps weren't ready for them and, and have, you know, there were some not great experiences. So, so in this edition of the program, we're focusing a lot more on, on, on organizational change and working with the um, staff and the board in particular to make some change in the way that they recruit. And um, I think also that the talk about um, transferable skills is so important. 
Um, and, uh, and so we're working with the host organization so that they talk about skills as being, they can be, you know, you could learn your skills in anything. It could be, as you say, Lucy, in a chip shop, it could be, you know, looking after your grandmother. It could be, there's, there is no reason why the skills you've gained in other areas of your life shouldn't be incredibly valuable in the arts. Um, and, um, evidence-based as well. I mean, I think what we've always done in this program is to work with academics and um, other sectors uh, to work out what, what is it, why is this an issue and what are the figures? And this, this is a really important way of, of, so it isn't just, as you say, about anecdote. And um, the way I got into it, I, I don't know. I don't know really. I. I I had a very peripatetic um, childhood, I spent a lot of time in America. And so when I graduated, I went, I had a, a degree in art history and I went to America and because of my English accent, I got this amazing job working in a theater on Broadway. And, and it was just the accent. They just said they wanted an English person answering the telephone. I was in the right place at the right time. And then when I came back to England, I produced, I'm, a, I'm essentially, I'm a producer. Um, and um, the last thing I did was um, I ran the Jazz Festival in Cheltenham and Jerwood Arts were one of our funders. And when I left the festival, Jerwood asked if I would come and work with them on the programme. And um, so that's mainly what I do. And I, and I work for other funders as well. And um, I also work in um, cultural sector in Gloucester, which is my neighbouring my neighboring city. Um, and my last thing just to say is actually this whole lockdown, I have found Zoom and all this digital interaction really amazing because I'm based in rural Gloucestershire. Um, I, you know, in the past, I used to go to London quite regularly, but I missed out on lots of stuff. There's this thing called What's Next. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's a great networking thing. I never could go, it was 8.30 on a, you know, Wednesday morning. I was never in London at 8.30 on a Wednesday morning. And, and it's all online now. And I can, um, so I'm really loving all of the networking opportunities, including ones like today that are possible in a way that wasn't before. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. It's really useful to hear from so many uh, varied speakers. So hopefully there will be something for all of our attendees to pick up on um, over the course of this session. Um, so I guess in terms of moving on, I guess there's kind of, Obviously, this year has been a very interesting year. Um, so probably, yeah, the, clear to everyone that there's been a number of challenges this year. But obviously, the focus of this event is probably knowing about what is actually the picture within the museums and arts and cultural heritage sectors at the moment. So I wondered if I can begin with maybe Tamsin and Susan as members, kind of uh, as your your representing professional bodies, essentially. What are your members saying to you? So what are museums and heritage organisations saying to you in terms of... Um, what 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 changes have gone on in their in their areas and what recruitment might look like in the future? Um, I'm not sure who wants to begin that between Tamsin and Susan. Yeah, Tamsin, fire away. Um, so I think some of the conversations I've had is it's still too soon to tell. So it is an emerging scene. So we're seeing seeing things change. Um, certainly, there have been phases of development 
So I had conversations, Susan was party to one of those conversations with a number of uh, professional bodies and networks around what their individual constituents had felt they had developed. So there, there was a raft of very quick, responsive training and development and development to respond to often the shift to go digitally. There then was some more uh, focus around learning, learning new ways of, of working, perhaps learning more around risk assessments and health and safety requirements and all of the changes as a result of being COVID secure. There was certainly a, a focus around how to ensure that both collections are safe at a distance and that communities are get engaged digitally and increasingly uh, a need for better advocacy to influence funders and local governments around uh, maintaining funding or being flexible in terms of, of, of delivery. Certainly a real focus at an individual level and individual resilience. And I, I don't mean that as a badge of honor. Uh, I do mean that as a skill set that can be developed. And that resilience skill set is a function of who I am, but also the duty of care of my organization. And, and, and not all organizations have stepped up to the plate, if truth be told. And certainly some organizations have contributed to uh, perhaps a lack of resilience. Uh, in, in terms of, of how, how people have been supported. So first of all, in summary, there, there's been a raft of development opportunities for people to respond. So it has been a learning situation for lots in a positive way that's hugely energising. Mm -hmm. Equally, there's been new skills that have had to be learned that aren't as positive. For example, managing redundancy consultations, having difficult conversations with people. Uh, the excitement for me, because I'm a half full person, is that this will have created change and change often relates to improvement. So what I'm also hearing is that individuals are thinking around what are those new skills? Also where perhaps there have been siloized working where you are either in learning or you are in collections. Uh, as a result of this, there has been much greater need for collaboration because people have been either furloughed or working from home. Uh, and the, there is a, a much stronger dialogue and connection making between the different strands, uh, which I think can only be a positive thing, because that means we can work more effectively with our collections and communities. From a recruitment perspective, and I will just hold down, you know, so recruitment and, and selection is my area of specialty, that and change management, so I could bore you at length about good RNS practice. Uh, I suppose my concern is that we will default to using blunt measures for shortlisting, as a time-saving device and also as a, a way of managing the significant number of people that will be interested in an ever-decreasing number of jobs. And I know that sounds really sorry. I always feel like I'm the, 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 the bearer of bad news in these sort of situations, but I think the reality is that the sector is shrinking and will continue to do so. Uh, uh, what does that mean for recruitment? I think it could be really positive but my concern is that we sort of go back to more traditional models of recruitment that aren't as supportive. And I'm going to stop talking there because I could talk forever. <laughs> Thanks, Tamsin. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to follow up on some of those. I think, yes, um, innovation opportunities are uh, sort of a, a way to help the sector evolve and digital skills is definitely one of those that has come out of, actually, uh, we actually did carry out a survey. So I've actually got some evidence <laughs> um, in relation to the fact that uh, you know how how can people uh, sort of use those digital skills to great effect how they can research advance uh, to advance technology and heritage science because 
the thing with conservation, it's not just sort of hand skills, it's actually uh, the whole raft of skills that are required to become a, a conservator or to work uh, in conservation. Uh, so it, it could be material science, it could be um, sort of contemporary art, for example, uh, the, the digitalization of, of all of that sort of work, how to archive and conserve it, um, time-based media, they're all sort of sort of new things that we were grasping with anyway and they, these are things that are going to continue to grow as part of the new archives of the new new uh, collections that will be made um, but in terms of uh, sort of feedback that we gained from the survey that we carried out uh, in the summer and we're actually going to do a follow-up to it in at the end of this month um, but um, yes, it is a bleak picture out there. 26% uh, of our respondents said that they'd been furloughed. Uh, so there's quite a, a high percentage there of those people. 70% uh, of them said that their monthly income had decreased um, because you have to remember that in conservation, uh, we have actually a third of our workforce are actually uh, in private practice. So they're not necessarily, so they are relying on commissions from museums and galleries and libraries and private owners uh, and clients across the board to actually commission them to do that work. So uh, obviously their sort of uh, resources are being reduced and that has an impact in itself. Um, what we have been sort of saying is that, um, yes, again, different ways of working as Tamsin mentioned, sort of getting people to get used to uh, adapting to working from home, uh, working in the sort of uh, using remote software and it, it lends itself more to others than, than it does to some. some. Um, for example, I actually have been working from home since 1997, so it's um, been quite a sort of a, a thing for me to do. Uh, and it's been quite interesting to watch my colleagues actually adapting to that environment. Uh, and I actually had to adapt as well because it, you, the skill set changes as you adapt to the, the way that you're communicating and um, I totally agree that uh, sort of the, um, the fact that I'm actually based in Devon uh, and my colleagues are in London uh, and I, I'm not spending so much time going up and down the railway line, I'm sure Tamsin will uh, sort of echo that from Edinburgh, <laughs> that you sort of now have opportunities to actually um, communicate far easier in some ways. And I think that's actually getting into the recognition um, of the system of, of, of people who are working in it. Uh, what we've also experienced is that there has been an enormous demand for digital access to collections. Uh, and that is um, something that will probably be of more demand, digitization of projects, uh, so that um, the public can actually access them uh, as and when they want to in their field. So that's sort of the immediate impact. Um, and in terms of longer, longer term impact, we're basically, yes, it's likely that there are potential closures of conservation practices and redundancies of conservation staff. Um, so what we're doing, what ICON is doing at the moment is we're actually lobbying government to ensure that the specialist skills survive because once they've gone, they've gone um, and you know, students are the future of, of those skills. We need to embrace that and, and keep those going. 
uh, hand skills, uh, science material skills, etc. Prevent preventive conservation as well. Uh, so we've also been exploring a kick the Kickstart scheme, uh, which um, I don't know, we might cover that later on. Uh, but um, we reckon that there will be significant shifts in the profession and looking across the board, the wider, the wider remit of the conservator is not necessarily as blinkered as it has been in the past. Uh, so that's probably um, as much as... Yeah, great. Thank you for sharing that, Susan and Tamsin. I think obviously we're all aware that particularly this sector has been really hard hit by current circumstances. And although it's a bit of a grim picture to hear, I think the fact that you've done a survey, Susan, and you, you have that in with professionals working um, within the industry, hopefully gives some students just some real insights in terms of what's going on. Um, I will say, though, that there are opportunities out there. They are obviously, obviously more competitive, though, because you're more people applying for fewer places. So I guess... Um, in, in terms of kind of what students can be doing at the moment, maybe if I begin with you, uh, Dikshana, as you, you kind of are in the kind of practice of learning and education uh, in your new role in Somerset House and skills and engagement, sorry. Um, so I wondered if you can give any tips in terms of um, what students can actually do if they're applying for a museum job or, or a culture job that is very competitive at the moment. What make, would make their application stand out, in your opinion? Thanks. Um, I think... The fact that things have gone digital, there's more online. So our creative careers program was a series of networking and kind of learning about the wider creative and cultural sector by coming to Somerset House and engaging with, with those artists and creatives. But we've taken that program online completely and our next session's actually on, on Thursday and I'll, I'll put it in the chat afterwards. There's lots of organizations that have, they didn't first, it might not have been straight away, but they've now worked out how they can take things on digitally and in the future, hopefully do it in real life and digitally. So. I would get out there on Google, like have a look at the industries you want, see what online training there is. Lots of it can be free, um, so you can speak to. For me, early on, I got on social media and I use Twitter a lot. Like you can directly follow the organization you wanna work with. You can directly follow people that work for that organization and know what they're doing and, and how they're doing it and even get into a conversation with them, you know? So there's ways to still kind of, get that rounded picture in your head about what's happening in the sector what's going on there's there's sector bodies like the museum association and others that yes you need to be members of but there's also their website that can give you that context and you can see if it's the right membership organization for you um i found that really useful early on in my career um signing up as a student member of the museums association um i learned i was definitely going down the path of learning and engagement and at the time there was probably more of a divide between those and it's definitely coming together how tamsin is saying but it definitely gave me a wider context and a wider understanding so when I was applying for jobs I wasn't just talking about this is what I do for my school's program it was a, a wider context of, of, of what I was saying um, and I think yeah I just think like we're we we're, we're at home more we're online more but we're not always on on the online things that we want to be on sometimes you're sitting on that zoom call and that mass all-staff meeting that we have every Tuesday and I know that like you maybe if you're on if you're doing that if you have that time just using that to kind of just see what's out there and see who's who's out there um definitely think about what was um lucy said about your skills 
like that you've got outside of it. I definitely, I had retail. I think we all had retail at some point, but that made me really good at customer service. And I know that my first job, while it was about engaging an audience in an interactive gallery, fundamentally, I didn't need a master's degree to do that. I didn't need like what I was using was my basic, um, you know, good communication skills of, of talking to lots of different people to engage them on, on something. Um, so yeah, I think spend that time looking at your your CV. You know, um, have a look on. There's lots of job sites out there. Like Leicester Museums Jobs is fantastic. It collates museum jobs from around the world. Like have a look at them. Look at the JDs. Look at what they're asking for. Go. Oh yeah, brilliant. I can do all of that. Oh, I can't do that. And then try and see if you can work out how you get that skill and it doesn't have to be you know directly doing that thing it might be a roundabout way that, that you go about it um and then yeah i think you know hopefully lockdowns will come to an end and buildings will reopen and just try and get to the ones you want to work in and something that's want to pick up on something that both susan and tamsin said i think there's two questions that will come out in the years to come and they shouldn't just come from the organization it should come from anyone any organization you want to work at work with you should be asking how they looked after their staff during coronavirus and how they responded to black lives matters so get on people's websites have a look at what their commitments are and see if they are an organization you want to work for because i think that's more it's always been important but it's more important than ever and, and tamsin's right not every organization got it right maybe they made a mistake but some of them very consciously chose to not do it the right way so I think that's use this time to, to find that and kind of narrow down and it will make it easier when it when jobs do come up and I did read somewhere and I probably should quote this otherwise it's fake note news but I can't remember where I read it but I did read that things are starting in all sectors it's people are the vac the vaccine update is leading to people to think okay there things are going to not go back to normal straight away but we can start thinking ahead planning ahead we've definitely started doing it at work for the first time we had a looking at three years ahead meeting it was brilliant to not be looking a day ahead i'm going to be honest um and so i think you know get yourself ready so when those jobs come up you're kind of ready to kind of pounce on them i guess sorry that was a very roundabout way of going around that but i hope it answered your question no, no, thank you so much for sharing that. And that brought up a lot of additional things. We're going to touch on diversity in a little bit. But um, Lucy, if I can maybe move to you, because I think what Sean was saying there, it links really nicely to Fair Museum Jobs, which is an organisation that you're involved with. And they're really responsible for kind of promoting or advocating for fair practices within the sector. And at a time where um, maybe kind of... Uh, full-time paid opportunities might not be available, a lot of students may be looking to things like volunteering or unpaid work. So what tips would you give to students in terms of um, things to look out for or how to protect themselves in terms of taking on voluntary uh, work to get their foot in the door into the sector? Um, so first of all, I'd say um, don't sell yourself short. Um, if you can be paid for it, get paid for it. Um, this sector has existed on the unpaid labour of people for so long that make sure your volunteering is a choice and that you have like active agency in what you're doing like don't just choose to do something because you feel like you need it on your cv um like really don't um it has to be fun it has to be meaningful um so please you know be mindful um, saying that, um, I think there will be a lot of different opportunities coming up. There are lots of different digital opportunities, as people have said before. But I think it also depends on the kind of organisations that there are. So lots of local authorities, so your council-run museums and so on, they're having cuts left, right and centre. 
so there aren't necessarily people to run volunteering pro programs um which doesn't mean they don't want to it just means there's no capacity um so but so if you're in like an area where you just have your kind of your your council museums don't think oh there's nothing you know you can start to think quite actively about what can i do as an individual so like it maybe sounds a bit trite but i always recommend to people like set up like an instagram of like museums i like or uh objects i think are cool off the internet because uh, it's something that you can then go and say oh well you know i was stuck at home for ages and i did some digital volunteering but actually i had to do loads of caring and all these other things but i've got this lovely list of you know i don't know medieval bookmarks that you're into like whatever it is just so that you can show a bit of like enthusiasm and curiosity and you can do it on your terms too um so that's kind of one thing that i would i would recommend um yeah that's probably my top tip for now <laughs> great thank you that's really useful i think it is about thinking creatively absolutely and outside the box in terms of what you can do whether it's through building a portfolio or just doing something else um, it still counts as work experience. It's still something you can put on your CV. So that's really good advice there. Um, if I move now to Kate, because um, obviously your role within Gerard Arts is quite uh, focused on uh, supporting people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds in terms of getting in the arts. I wondered if um, there were any kind of challenges that were unique to this group at, at this moment in time in terms of getting their foot in the door um, into the industry. Um, you mean specifically at the moment or just um, in more well, specifically at the moment and more generally as well? Yeah, well, I think um, the evaluations have shown that um, a lot of our fellows, um, the people that have been through the programme, we call fellows, um, they've been through a one year um, role with the organisation and then they take part in the in a professional development program that we run as a program across all 50 of them. So we bring them all together as well as them working in their roles. Um, and um, we've yet to meet this, the new cohort that are currently being recruited, but in the past, uh, and we've kept in touch with our fellows from before, so we know how they're coping at the moment. I mean, they were, you know, they are those at the start of the careers. We know those are the people that have suffered the most um, with, you know, through the COVID pandemic, they've been the first, you know, to lose their jobs. They, a lot of them on, are on zero hours contracts um, and um, they have very little support. A lot of them are freelancers. A lot of our fellows have gone on to um, have what were successful freelance careers before. Um, and uh, so they are, we know that a lot of them are struggling. Um, Again, actually, Lucy, your thing about um, Twitter, I think is really important. I mean, they are brilliant at sharing their experiences on Twitter, which I think is a great way of, it's not a woe is me, it is a, this is the situation for somebody in my position. I don't have any um, uh, um, home security. I don't, I, you know, don't own, I don't, I have to pay for my rent every month. I don't have job security. I don't necessarily have a family I can go home to. Um, and uh, so they are, um, you know, most the most vulnerable, amongst the most vulnerable. And because a lot of our fellows, because the intersection 
sectional nature of low socioeconomic also means there's a uh, you know uh, um, a lot of intersection with other protected characteristics and um, and we know those have a multiplying effect on people's um, experiences and so um, we've worked um, a lot with our host organizations in this edition to think about how these job adverts will land with people who are in these situations you know they are presumed they are probably considering leaving the arts or giving up on their dream or they're feeling it's now or never to get that foot in the door in the arts i've been working in retail or wherever else and this is my chance um this is my stab at it so i think um it, it said the jobs um the job packs show there's quite a lot of um you know support for relocation there's support for people to um present their applications in different formats there's um a real focus on simplifying the job application process uh and providing you know zoom open sessions during um, recruitment so people can chat to to uh, the people they would be um, working with um so i think um what else might be useful i think the other thing is um understanding your context i mean it is it's a very hard thing for people to talk about their background i think there is no socioeconomic background has always been a very difficult area to measure and to talk about and and the way that the hosts are recruiting in this edition is, is, to, is to ask people to reflect on the barriers that they faced. And I think that can be really hard for some people, um, but what we're trying to do is to get organizations when they recruit to think about the context in which applicants are from. And, 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 and so what you've achieved your your academic or your job or whatever has to be taken in the context of your background to be relevant and to show who really is the best candidate for your organization right thank you so much for that kay um that was really insightful to hear and we'll we'll move on shortly i'm just conscious of time so i know some questions have been sent through so we move on to that shortly um just a couple more questions i wanted to ask and moving on now to obviously covid aside another big part of recruitment and reflection that people have had to do on recruitment in recent months is around diversity and inclusion and i know it's been brought up a little bit during the course of this discussion um i just wondered what you think it lies ahead essentially in the sector for recruiting maybe a more diverse workforce um what how do you see that kind of happening in the next uh, few months ahead or a few years ahead i know uh, dikshana you you uh, mentioned this quite a lot so i'll begin with you maybe yeah i think it's, it's a new thing. I think that the, the, the sector has tried for a while. It just hasn't had the successes it, it should have had. Um, I think there was lots of things that were being um, tried to brought in to, to, to have fairer recruitment. I'm not saying that has happened, and I'm sure Lucy can give you statistics to show you that, that it has not. But um, I think that this year, and I think the impact of unemployment rising, especially among young people, and the impact of George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matters and that commitment, a lot of anti-racism pledge commitments, there's a even stronger, and yes, it's around race, racism that that commitment of diversity and inclusion is there, but it's also looking beyond that too. Um, 
I think it will push it further and quicker, but what you're going to have to parallel that is a freeze in recruitment at the same time. So you're not going to see the real impacts of change for some time. Um, but hopefully this pause in a way is a positive thing. I can speak personally for Somerset House. We're using that time to, to look at all of our recruitment, all of our practices. We aren't perfect in, in how we're doing. One of the things we did is we put jobs out without salaries on them. That is not diverse or inclusive. It, it um, saw Lucy's face there. Um, it definitely does not make it diverse or exclusive. Um, inclusive. But what we are doing is also acknowledging a lack of expertise within our organization and needing the need to bring in consultants to support us to, to do that. So something we want to do is create benchmarks. Now, there are people that will think that benchmarks are good and people that will think they are, they are bad, but we feel like it will it will hold us to account to try and achieve that change. And not that once we hit that target, that's it, that's the end of it. But we don't have any black people in senior leadership. I'm the only person of color on my senior leadership. Our trustees, out of 13 of them, we have two black trustees. So there's definitely so much that we need to do at every level of our organization, even our staff below senior management, there is some diversity, but not if you did we don't actually have the data so one of the issues we have is equality and monitoring forms are optional and people feel that they're filling them in for statistical reasons rather than whatever whatever reason they're being asked for doing it but we're trying to work out how we can actually get people to fill those forms in so that we can then know the truth of the the makeup of our workforce so that we can truly set benchmarks and then and move forward from there and this pause i think will help um help organizations have that there's pause in, in recruitment and hopefully in the next year it will pick up and we'll be ready once we are recruiting to put out job adverts that are inclusive that are diverse I think applications will change and um, even recruiting for our young producers we changed how we it was expressions of interest it was optional sending in videos rather than filling in I'm dyslexic I would have loved to have not had to fill in applications in the last 14 years of my career it takes a lot of time for anyone but if you're dyslexic it takes 10 times longer as well so um I definitely think this idea of changing how people can can um apply is is going to is going to come in in more full force you have places like the welcome collection that have been doing it for a while and have been doing it well and i'm i think others will will look to them as well so yeah hopefully that kind of touches upon it no it does thank you so much for that i totally agree and i think it's important to kind of bear in mind that these things do take time unfortunately and i think it's been a period of reflection over the last few months and then now hopefully moving forward get putting that into practice and looking at what other organizations are doing and and taking learnings from that and implementing that into um, your, your own organisation. So thank you for sharing that. As I said, I am mindful of time. So I'm going to kind of wrap up um, a little bit with, with, with my questions. Um, just essentially to share, um, obviously, I know that um, we've kind of obviously seen in the news that the government, um, the, the Culture Secretary has obviously given um, some funding to um, organisations, um, museums, arts and heritage organisations. Obviously, not everyone has been eligible for that. But um, with that in mind, what would you say uh, do you think kind of lies ahead um, for, for um, the sector, really, in terms of do we think that the funding, um, funding is kind of needed in terms of uh, boosting the recruitment prospects? Or um, what, what kind of general thoughts do you have about what lies ahead in terms of uh, boost from funding or other things that you've got coming up in the pipeline that may uh, make the recruitment picture a little bit uh, more positive? 
I'll just very briefly. So we're not an employer. So uh, we're a very small organisation. What we do. So there's there's 20 FTE. So you know, I would love to say there are lots of other people working in the department, and we would have loads of vacancies. That's never been a reality for us, and and is less so at the moment in the current economic climate. We don't get any government funding. So please join the Museums Association. 20% off as new members. Please join. Uh, but I think there is something around just capitalizing on all those opportunities for professional development for connection making for cv building uh and making yourself ready uh there are other opportunities within the sector and, and the kickstart scheme is one that i know that many museums are are focusing on that's a very specific group of people that 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 particular scheme is open to so 16 to 24 year olds either as a recipient of universal credit or at risk of long-term unemployment. So it's not necessarily uh, an opportunity for everybody. But I also know that organisations are moving far more clearly towards apprenticeships as part of an opportunity to uh, um, join and uh, and to learn on the job. So whilst you may think, well, Tanzan, I've got an undergraduate, I've got a postgraduate, or I will do, hopefully, uh, why would I think about being an apprentice? I think we need to reframe that apprentices as they exist in the 21st century are not a young person's training scheme that would have been back in the day when I first uh, left school. It is about saying to work in the museum sector or any sector, there are particular dedicated professional skills you need to develop. Being an apprentice enables you to do that and get paid. So when we talked about unpaid internships or ridiculous amounts of volunteering to gather that skill set what i would say is don't overlook those apprenticeship opportunities because that really is a really good way of taking your theoretical knowledge your critical analysis of being a, a an academic person who's gone to university and then get that practical experience in a variety of organizations and there are apprenticeships for for conserv conservation for technicians for learning for curators for registrars there's quite a few of them out there so just don't overlook those opportunities for apprenticeships would be my big call to arms yeah i think the thing the thing with apprenticeships though is there's they're, they're a bit slow off the ground they're, they're, so you know there's not huge amounts of them being promoted at the moment and they tend to be sort of for the for the lower grades but there is like tamsin says in conservation there's a level seven which is actually running alongside a master's. So if you've got a sort of a, um, a bachelor's degree, you can, you know, you can utilize that. Or if you haven't even got a master's in conservation, you can still actually look to it. So as long as it's not related to what you've got so far, um, an apprenticeship is eligible, you are eligible to, to look at that. And following off what was been said before about sort of you know, looking at sort of what to do, um, preparing for that, yeah, investigate the areas that you're really interested in, showing a passion for that, um, and really um, sort of building evidence that's across the board and thinking outside the box. Right. Um, oh, can I just add, um, it, I'd also just like to say it's okay to kind of think, oh, I'd love to work in museums and heritage, but I can't face it right now. Mm -hmm. Go and do another job come back to us you know um I worked as a care assistant for years because it was not so I couldn't find a job and I got amazing skills and then I came back and I was all the better for it 
So please don't feel too demoralized by, by what, what the situation can be like, but also please don't give up hope if that's what you're thinking. Um, you, don't, you don't have to be, be the museum person right now. Museums are going to be here for a while. Okay, thanks, Lucy. I can see you, Kate. I think you want to mention just something briefly. Yeah, just very briefly. Um, it's fairly basic, but three growth areas, I think, across the cultural sector. I've been reviewing applications from organisations for another funder, and, and digital is, of course, an extremely um, huge growth industry at the moment. Um, so I think developing your digital skills, your ability to um, communicate very um, strongly online is something I think is a is really important skill. I think um, fundraising, of course, is always a really important skill and is invaluable and every organisation is going to need them. Um, and the, um, the third one, which I'm just forgotten, but uh, well, oh yes, and also uh, um, skills in engaging with you know wide communities, you know your own community, uh, your ability to talk to um, wide audiences. I think if you can if you can show that as a skill that you have or something that you've developed, I think that's a, those three are really important skills. Mm -hmm. All organisations, I think, will be looking. Can for. I just add? Um, we we've actually been surveying our, some employers recently, um, and four of the top skills that came out of there were problem solving, um, sort of being creative thinkers and resourceful, um, actually having good hand skills um, if that's the area of conservation that you want to be in, uh, a team player, so a sort of very much a, a sort of a, a generic skill and communication being being the the other one so those you know they're all sort of things that you can glean from every uh, sort of opportunity uh, it doesn't have to be directly as lucy's saying straight into the sector thank you that sorry Dakshana. i'm just going to go into student questions now sorry okay, that's fine I'm sure it'll come up another way. That's fine. Yeah, sorry, we can discuss this at length. Um, and there's so many good bits of information that's coming through, but we can see that I've got quite a few questions. So, and we've also got uh, about half an hour for networking. So we're running slightly over. So I'll just kind of uh, throw out some questions briefly that we've had through. Um, this one's had quite a lot of likes. And so I'm going to see if maybe one of you can just answer each question. Um, so someone's asked for, uh, can the panel please speak about the current landscape uh, with regards to work uh, visa sponsorship in the sector so we have a lot of international students obviously at UCL so some of them who have just finished their master's degree um, aren't eligible for visas and obviously they require visa sponsorship so does one person want to share briefly an overview of the landscape in terms of that Tamsin I can see your hand up so I'll throw that to you uh, the news is not good. So since 2010, the requirements for cultural and heritage as being one of those uh, sectors where we could look for sponsorship was removed as a function of the Cameron government. That's not gone back. So we still very much in light, certainly with policy around hostile environment, is it is highly unlikely, if not near impossible, that an organisation would look to sponsor anybody because we have a an excess of talent already within the UK and never mind Europe as a whole. So the business argument around sponsorship of uh, individuals that don't currently have the right to work in the UK isn't there. So it is 
highly, highly, highly unlikely that an organization would do that, certainly at an entry level post. Hey, thank you for sharing that, Tanzing. I know that's not necessarily good news to hear, but I think it's important that you give the, the honest picture of what's coming through. Um, another question now, and I might throw this to Susan, uh, maybe, or oh, just kind of scroll down. Um, someone's asked, is it a must-have to have a degree in either curatorship or conservation? And if so, at what level? Do you need to have a PhD, for example, or an MA to work in conservation? Susan, do you mind asking that? Uh, no, well, in, in conservation, I, I can't um, cover curatorship necessarily, but conservation uh, is, uh, we have our professional accreditation programme, which um, basically is uh, a set of standards that people work towards. So we don't actually say that you have to have a particular qualification in conservation in order to do that. It, and so the professional accreditation for conservators is around how they have reached the particular proficient level at the time that they apply for accreditation. Um, that, that means that there are lots of different routes into the profession, so they could actually be a, a sort of a, a curator to start off with, uh, with you know, and move into conservation. It could be the other way around. But it is a case of measuring themselves against professional standards. And if they go onto the ICON website, um, I would suggest that, that if they are interested in working in conservation, those standards are sort of key um, for them to get an interest in that. Great. Thank you so much for that, Susan. Um, Another question here has said, uh, what types of positions are looking most secure? I think we've kind of discussed that around maybe the, and digital kind of skills or digital roles are looking um, particularly important. So to follow up on that, I think someone else has asked a question. Uh, let me just find it now. Might have disappeared. Oh, so to say, um, could you expand, expand slightly on what sort of digital skills are most in demand? So does one of you want to take that question on in terms of digital skills? Go ahead. I think it's a mixture of the ability to engage audiences digitally. So thinking about how if you would do something in real life, how you would convert it to digital, but also have a way to do it in real life later. So the way we're thinking going ahead is instead of just thinking, I'll just stream it and put it online. We're thinking, how do you make the engagement exciting? And what, what are those skills that we use in, in human to human contact and transfer them to a digital platform? I think social media, I think there's gonna be more things around podcasts, more things around videos. So at Somerset House, we ran an internal training program to upskill our staff across each department so that each department had people that were trained in audio editing, video editing, so that we didn't just go to the digital team every time we produce something. And I think that's gonna be more and more asked for. I don't think we're completely set up um, in how we train and learn in each of our respective specialisms. So that is going to change, I think, over the years and even I'm sure university courses and, and other things will have to respond to that because it's not that, in the same way that learning and engagement should not just sit in a team, digital skills should not just sit in a team. It needs to go across an organization. So everyone from the beginning is thinking about how they would deliver whatever they need to deliver in their role, but also make it work digitally. I think there's a whole load of training around Teams and Zoom and those day-to-day -day operations of how we work as organizations. I think we responded quickly. I mean, I don't think I use Teams effectively. I'm sure I go in roundabout ways to do things. So I think there's lots of things like that, that, you know, reading about that, even just getting your head into that would help, um, help you to, to kind of get that ready for when you are applying for jobs. 
Great, thank you so much. We do still have some questions coming through, but the ones I'm seeing are quite specific. So, and I'm conscious of time, as I've just said. So I think we will wrap the discussion there. Um, and thank you again to our panelists for joining. It's just been a really insightful discussion and there's, we could have talked on for ages and ages, but apologies that time is quite limited. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. We hope the discussions around transferable skills, thinking creatively about your job search strategy and the growing importance of digital within the sector has offered you some food for thought, as well as some action points to take away with you. Remember, if these conversations do spark some inspiration and you'd like to have a career discussion with a consultant, you can book a short guidance appointment through your MyUCL Careers account. We're always happy to hear from you. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you again on the next UCL Careers podcast episode. Take care.